Welcome to the Fort Swing Orchestra Podcast. I'm your conductor, Barry Stone, and every week or so I bring you the latest PSO piece, along with a selection of works from the past. Fort Swing Orchestra is a project, an art project, that pairs music recorded outside with images made on site, performed and recorded at home and away, solo and with others. Our orchestra is composed of birds, guitars, artists, poets, and passing cars that spontaneously create ephemeral, symphonic chants-inspired compositions. The original site and hub for all things PSO can be found at portswingorchestra.org. This week's pod features an interview with Henry Smith, who was the co-creator on the last PSO piece, number 2222. Henry came over on a rare rainy day and spent the day on the porch uh, playing songs in September. And he brought his soft touch to his nylon strings uh, to make so much goodness. We have a wide-ranging conversation about his musical upbringing, high school battles of the bands, Pat Benatar, the semiotics of album covers, wood type, and much, much more. So uh, stay tuned for that. But before we get into it, I want to mention a couple of events. First, uh, beginning Saturday, January 20th, is a series of PSO-curated live events taking place at CoLab Projects in Austin, located off Glissman Road, sort of near 183, an airport. Over four Saturdays, um, two in January, January 20th and 27th, and February 17th and 24th, two separately ticketed events will happen on each Saturday. Tickets are available on a sliding scale and available at collabprojects.org that will feature a wide range of artistic approaches to the interconnections between image and sound. The series is called Vast as a Sea, which comes from a quote from Michel Chion, who wrote, Vast is the sea of hearing around the raft of vision. And it is this raft and ocean that we will be sailing in, in at Collab. Collab is a storied nonprofit space headed up by Sean Gallagher and a great team of folks. Its current configuration is a 40-foot concrete corridor comprised of four culverts situated on about an acre of land just east of the city. PSO and the artists participating in the event will activate the space by having two short-throw video projectors wall-mounted on either end of the space that will be projected on the ceiling, and viewers will be invited to sit on the floor, which will be covered by a plush uh, layering of blue and green movie blankets uh, to encourage a prone viewing position so you can see the ceiling. The artist's performings will, will occupy the center of the structure, and they will have two pairs of speakers facing the direction of the viewing area, so two sort of stereo fields on either side of the, per, of the performers. The first night is Saturday, January 20th, beginning at 8 p.m. with San Antonio artist Anthony Francis and Xavier Gilmore. Uh, followed at 9 p.m. with me and Paul Stottinger reprising the tunes we played in the Terrell space a few months ago, but set against the new video of images of clouds and trees of Bastrop and some other special surprises. For more about Anthony Xavier's piece, tune into the next pod, which will drop later this week. You can purchase tickets again at www.colabprojects.org. That is co-labprojects.org. Our guest, Henry Smith, is organizing an exhibit at the Visual Arts Center on UT campus, which opens Friday, January 26th. 
5 to 8 p.m. and runs through February 10th of 2024. The event is free and open to the public, and you can hear more about it in our interview coming up next. Directly after the interview, we will hear the PSO number 222, two times camera plus guitar, which Henry and I recorded together back in September, which then will be followed by a track from his dad's band, which we talk about, and a selection of voice memos and sketches recorded by Henry himself that will take us out. Hi, and welcome to the Port Swing Orchestra podcast. Today, I have Henry Smith as a special guest on the pod, which I'm super excited for. We did uh, episode or number 222 together, um, recorded on the porch on a rainy day uh, earlier in the fall. Um, Henry is a multi-talented individual. He's a printmaker, makes sculpture, uh, is a runner, a lover of dogs, a guitar player, um, and uh, leads a, uh, runs a, a creative lab at UT, um, is the impresario of a wood-type uh, collection there, and we're going to hear more about that in a second. So I'm glad that you've is joining us to talk about that and more, I assume. So welcome to the podcast, Henry Smith. Hey, Barry. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting. Yeah, I've <laughs> Uh, I was honored to be on the porch with you back in September. So this is a fun continuation. Oh, man. Cheers. Um, thanks. Um, so I just want to introduce you to the, the audience. So how did you you grew up in the Midwest? Right. And then and then you you came to Texas, I, I think, to get a BFA right and, at, uh, at UT. How did you get to Texas? I try to put myself in my like 17 year old brain and figure out how this happened. Um, <laughs> I was just like applying to schools, trying to go somewhere that wasn't near home. And uh, Austin seemed like a cool place to be. And I was kind of aware of, I was aware of the the music culture here and the, the just the general creative scene. And I was excited about the possibility of like, of the, the the crossover of of music and art and and this seemed like a good place for that to happen and it just so happened that there was a, a awesome art program that uh offered me a, a bit of money to to come here so um uh yeah and it's been 10 years now in austin which has been great nice so you grow up around music then yeah yeah um my dad is a musician and uh it just kind of always was around and always something i uh was absorbing and and doing like playing instruments and um definitely went in and out of of interests in in different uh different instruments and and uh like my my focus was always changing in different creative ways um and i never was pursuing music. I never thought of doing it professionally, but it's just always been something that I do uh, like every day. I just, uh, I'll play something at some point. And that's probably been the case since I was in high school. So what kind of music was, is your, was your dad like in a band? Was he like a recording guy? What was he doing? Yeah, he, um, his degree is in classical guitar. Um, so lots of classical guitar going on when I was really young. 
but doing all kinds of things also playing with different groups his uh high school band got back together and played uh, a number of shows over the years when i was a kid and uh i remember like sleeping on gig bags behind the stage like late at night and yeah we were going to see music all over town when i was probably too young to be in those places where the music was happening but i'm grateful for that that experience early on now i'm curious like what shows were you listening to and also like what was that band like that i assume it wasn't classical guitars the high school band uh no definitely not yeah shout out to einstein's brain yes the the trio um hard to describe i wish i wish uh my dad was here to to fill in in the blanks um, yeah he'll have to he'll have to come and comment or something and, and and set the record straight yeah very like you know they're they're a product of of the 80s but like 70s rock you know 80s rock inspiration uh police that's probably kind of the main touch point i would say um yeah so. i was yeah i was going to suggest maybe sort of a you know a pop oriented sort of progressive you know maybe yeah. some some intricate I, fingerings situations some some yeah. different time signatures perhaps yes i would say so uh so yeah this was all an, an eclectic introduction to music uh early on um and, and so what shows were you being like or, or were you initiating or were you just kind of like going along with your dad's like, hey, let's go see, uh, you know, the Bangles or whatever it is. Um, uh, or, or Rush is coming to town and we're going to see him for the seventh time. Um, yeah. So uh, what were you looking at? My first like big show was Dave Matthews Band. Nice. Yeah, kind of. I, I definitely had a had a moment with like the 90s Dave Matthews Band uh kind of jammy stuff you, were would, you were you a fish head at any any point or never have been i have seen them but i i never have been super into i kind of like became aware of the jammy thing later um oh. like pretty recently um and then after the fact it was like oh dave matthews band falls into this this universe <laughs> <But> <laughs> you were sort of an accidental sort of jam band enthusiast via dave matthews so i guess the dead wasn't something that that was around the house or whatever yeah Yeah, never never big on the dead though i like i'm i feel like i'm appreciating these things now and like approaching it with a with a new perspective now and i can go and kind of dive in um but i haven't yeah it's it was never never a big ground you weren't following your dad and like selling uh, tie dye t shirts and no and, and all that kind of business. You you weren't playing it. Were you playing in bands too? And then high school because you said you you played since high school. I played uh, in starting in middle school. I had um, like a few kind of not serious uh, band projects. I think we we formed uh specifically for the purpose of playing a battle of the bands yeah yeah perfect uh and we knew one song which was uh hit me with your best shot by pat benatar um 
And at the Battle of the Bands, we uh, learned that it was possible that we would have to play a second song. And oh. we're immediately um, uh, startled. And um, <laughs> thankfully, uh, we were not good enough to have to play a second song. So it, it worked out. In the well, end. you were eliminated in the first round, so you didn't have to make up a song like a jam. You or know. just play it again. <laughs> play it again <laughs> nice yeah that's uh that's that's amazing so uh then you also have a robust art practice as well tell us about that because you do you do a lot of a lot of different things you know make making objects and then printing things and uh yeah. bumper stickers and all kinds yeah. of stuff well yeah i've always been always been making things um and uh i i guess i i got to where i am based on uh almost exclusively um an affinity for screen printing and, and um uh becoming aware of like the scene of uh screen printed gig posters mm. uh, uh one of my neighbors growing up uh, who still live, lives down the street from my dad. Um, uh, his name is Jay Ryan, who uh, his studio is called The Bird Machine. Um, and he's uh, a, a well-known uh, screen printer. And uh, uh, he was kind of early on an influence uh, on me because I, 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 I dug the stuff that he was making, but it was also, he was an example of a visual artist who's doing his thing, making a living. He's got his own shop and working with like huge bands and making cool stuff for them. And wow. that when I was in high school and kind of just like no questions asked, I knew that I was like on track for a, a visual art uh, trajectory, but not knowing where that would end up seeing kind of the the how print can live in the world in this like the space of of art and expression but also this kind of practical and yeah you know, that's awesome do you remember any like the posters that like really sort of like knocked you out yeah um i mean i i, I feel like things i latched onto early on where um he's done a lot of stuff for wilco and jeff tweedy uh chicago names mm -hmm. um so kind of like seeing these this work he'd done for for artists i admired it was like whoa this is awesome like he's he's a rock star of of the poster thing for having gotten to do these these projects um his style is very um illustrative um everything's drawn by hand uh all this hand-drawn lettering and that was this like intro to to print and an intro to to design and thinking about design and composition and typography and like where i am now can totally get traced back to just like being psyched about these wilco posters when i was 16. um that's awesome yeah so then coming to school I kind of like had this in my brain of um, like, I'm going to take a screen printing class and I'm going to like 
make some cool posters and t-shirts and it's going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I got into this class. I think I was, I was a fall of my sophomore year and I had also moved into Pearl street co-op. Um, nice. Um, and, uh, they were, they were booking some shows. There were some shows going on and they were looking for somebody to make a poster. And, um, I was like, oh yeah, I can totally do that. And I can like screen print it and like, yeah, it's going to be great. Not having screen printed myself before and, uh, <laughs> gotten into this class. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so my my first professional experiences were saying yes to things i didn't know how to do and then then figuring it out and uh i i like kind of built my my whole career can stem back to these like co-op parties that i made some wacky flyers for and like and things have grown so organically from those shows and like folks saw those posters and asked me to do more work and um yeah that's how that works. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, when I first came to Austin, my best friend lived at the Pearl Street Co-op. I mean, this is in uh, 1989. <laughs> uh, but it was quite a quite a scene, uh, definitely. And I don't know if you... I, I just saw, like, on Facebook, somebody post uh, posted a, uh, one of these screen-printed posters from back in the day uh, cool. one of the bands that I played in and it, it was, um, and there was a couple of, you know, there was this whole sort of Austin sort of psychedelic scene, you know, with yeah. like Jason Austin and Frank Kozik and Lindsey Kuhn, all these folks that made these like, just this really insane, uh, screen printed posters, you know, wow. cool. they're pretty, they're pretty wild. Um, it's a, every once in a while they'll, they'll pop up, but I'm, uh, I think, you know, they have a few of those things um, at the Whitliff of all places because they have a center for Texas music um, and they collect those things. And so there's some of that, you know, you know awesome. some of most of it's, you know, like Willie Nelson or whatever, the Armadillo and all that kind of business. But there are stuff like, you know, like Ed Hall or something playing Liberty Lunch or whatever. You know, it's just that's pretty great. Um, did you see that, you know, speaking of like that sort of like magic of music and imagery, um, which, and I mean, I mean, basically Port String Orchestra is really a, trying to like reanimate like record cover art, really, you know what I mean? Like to have a, a still image you can like dream into while listening to something that may be ephemeral and outside oriented, but it's really, a you know, we don't really in today's sort of music economy, there's, of course, there's records and all that kind of business, but in terms of its sort of, you know, uh, place in the culture, it's obviously not where it was. I wonder, did you see that, uh, that the documentary uh, that on, on hypnosis, the, those, the guy, Storm Thorgerson and um, uh, Aubrey Powell or Aubrey, Aubrey Poe, as they called him. Did you see that? No, I'm not familiar. It's on Netflix. It's called Squaring the Circle. And it's just, and it's by a, a photographer. It's, I don't know, it's, I think it's his first movie. Anton Corbin did it. And, and I have to say, there's some questionable sort of aesthetics that he, I think he like gets like caught up in like 
what hip, hypnosis did, which were these like he, they did all the Led Zeppelin record covers, the Pink Floyd records, all the ones that you're like, whoa, th- those crazy things. Of course, they were also like, there's no Photoshop. They like, they sure. collaged all those things and like went to the Sahara and put the red balls, you know, on the sand, inflated 60 balls. You know, it was crazy um, wow. what they're doing. But they're, you know, it is sort of a, a, a kind of a deep dive into that sort of, um, that that marriage between the sort of fantasy of the music and the and the imagery and sort of getting lost in a gatefold, you know, and, yeah. or you know, reading all the stuff before you even look at the record because you're, you know, you have it in a car or something, you know, before you can listen to it, you know. Um, there's a certain kind of I don't know. There's a certain kind of magic about it. It's sort of a you know uh, that I think there's so much about. Um, I don't know, something that, that I really love about what art does, you know, uh, that you can, you know, have this thing sort of affect your, your bedroom. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Album art and posters and like merch in general, just like really struck me at a young age as like these, um, just like, Object, objects and images that are the the like embodiment of the thing that the music that is so inspiring and like i just like really connected with that as a, an object an image person um i really latched onto that and just wanted to to participate in in the making of these artifacts um and the kind of legacy that they leave behind where you can like you can enjoy this thing or you can you can share the the like vibe of of this artist or this album just through something visual yeah uh, totally so i mean it's you know you know and it's you know it's it is branding right um in some way you know, absolutely like 100 percent, which is that sort of like it's a kind of magical semiotics right um and it's yeah. the good good part of that i suppose if we're going to like you know um, when you think about branding, you know, especially members of my Gen X generation, they start to turn green and die. Um, but it's it is it's just basically a semiotic relationship and an association. But it's so interesting to think about how like a band's logo, like how or their word mark or whatever is so intense. You know, I mean, I spent my youth you know trying to draw van halen logos on you know brown paper bags that covered textbooks for sure yeah. you know uh-huh. <laughs> it's formative it's totally formative your whole career goes yeah. back it does man it goes back to the v and that h and then later it's like pil or whatever you know i think i liked their like they're probably in like or new orders like you know um or Joy Division or whatever, all those are iconic factory records, you know. Um, it's all, um, it's so much of that sort of visual sort of richness, um, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, I also want to talk about, um, speaking of words and, and images, type is something that is near and dear to your heart, not only, you know, doing screen printing, but now you're sort of, um, I like to think of you like you're the sort of the, I don't know, the emperor um, of this um, uh, insane wood type collection that I think it may be owned by the Harry Ransom Center, but you have sort of now you've kind of are the steward of it, the custodian, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about that thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't 
I, I wouldn't use the word emperor. I try to. <laughs> All right. Custodian? Is that better? Keeper? Um, uh, Ambassador. I try to not have such a uh, um, the kind of like uh, overarching authority. For sure. The gatekeeper. Yeah, it's it's a crazy thing that I'm I'm very lucky to be in charge of. And I kind of stumbled into this. The short version of the story is that the School of Design at UT split into its own school after being a part of the art and art history uh, uh, program for a long time. Yeah. So it was a small chunk within art and, and art history, and then it split into its own school. And this happened um, about a year after I had graduated, and I was kind of dabbling between the two things because it, it they were the same department at that point, and, um, and the school split, and uh, they needed somebody to run the print shop uh um which just also happened to be the place where the prestigious collection of 19th century wood type also lived um and i just happened to be the guy that was hanging out all the time and knew how things work and they're like i guess you're the guy who works here now and i was like sweet sounds good um so it was the right place at the right time situation um and i feel very lucky to have kind of snuck in the back door because i still feel um wildly underqualified for being responsible for such um special artifacts and um so the the print shop is um it's called the design lab it's a mixed use workspace so it's kind of a it's a mixed use workspace for anything design students are working on we've got all kinds of tools and materials but it's mostly based around the print shop um so we have a huge collection of antique presses we have five vandercooks and uh this collection of um 19th century wood type that's 166 different uh boxes of type thousands of of pieces wow. uh and um they're all from the 1800s and these were like these were used for newspapers for posters for anything right i mean just and it, what what is the type sort of i mean can you explain somebody who doesn't even know what we're even talking about right where you know yeah. what you know when you used to print things it wasn't microsoft word they would have on wood, they would have it carved into it the, you know, in relief, the letter, which would then be, you know, inked, and then you would run a piece of paper over it when make an impression. And it's basically like a, a very fancy modular stamping sort of situation. I know that's going to make a lot of print people cringe, uh, but um, in some ways it's, it's, it's yes, movable type. Movable Mo type. Yes. <laughs> um, so the, the technology goes back to uh, Gutenberg people are familiar with Gutenberg and, and the Bibles. Um, that is the the Western uh, invention of, of this kind of printing, but similar things are happening in China um, even earlier than that. Uh, but it is all this legacy of, of relief printing, which is a carved uh, material that is used as a, a stamping process. Um, so wood type is, uh, there was this huge boom of wood type that happened um, in the 19th century. Um, 
kind of between 1830 and the end of the century where wood type and letterpress printing became this like foremost uh media production vehicle and um the wood type industry uh had this huge boom which coincided with the boom in um design so like you're making lots of type and type is getting used more in new places so we're going to make some new typefaces and different variations of those typefaces different styles that are stretched out or compressed and different weights of the stroke and so across that um arc of the 1800s up until the, the beginning of the 1900s there was just a huge like wave of uh innovation and in, in uh exciting type things happening so yes they're in the collection it's um all these boxes and each box contains a full alphabet of individually carved letters you can arrange those letters into a composition to spell the thing you want to spell and it gets coated with a layer of ink and pressed onto paper and you can make prints from it that sounds super easy we should you know right yeah <laughs> but it's actually super challenging right because you think about like all the spaces between the letters and the lines and all that business and like just to do like one paragraph i mean that this is like a real art form you know typography in itself even on the computer is a real sort of art form but this is a real sort of physical sort of mm -hmm. art form i think it's sort of interesting also to think of it you know i love type um but i'm not i don't know anything about it compared to like people who really know about it i just sort of sort of like i'm a fan <laughs> in yeah. some ways like armchair um type fan but you know mm -hmm. some of these typefaces right have you know that are still around have been around for hundreds of years right so what are there some surprising um you know typefaces that you have in this collection what the collection is like the rob roy collection something's r r rob roy kelly american yeah. wood type collection um so this was collected by um, a design scholar named rob roy kelly um starting in the 50s and he collected this um this body of of various typefaces to be this um like spectrum of wood type history uh he kind of discovered that there wasn't this catalog and and documentation of of the history of this thing so he set out to do it himself and uh so this collection kind of lives on as uh this um really exciting range of all that went on in wood type um in the 1800s um and then has set the precedent for where we are now we have typefaces in the collection that are still typefaces that are like a default in microsoft word uh like caslon mm. um a, a, a favorite kind of a classic um like elegant serif typeface uh so there's some familiar names there's a lot of um french clarendon typefaces which are um slab serifs they're like the kind of really blocky uh serifs 
and that's kind of your like classic western uh wanted poster yeah. uh, aesthetic <laughs> um so uh like it's it's very interesting that this lives here in texas now because there's like these inherent texasy things which are also just kind of a part of this like western cowboy pop cultural thing that like exists where like we associate these 19th century typefaces with the specific like hollywood cowboy thing right um, but they just were kind of styles of the time there was just typefaces that books were using that were common and uh and um these typefaces were used for like broadside poster printing so like a large scale display printing for communicating information um uh so like something that's really uh it, it's somewhat cynical now to, to when i have, like, have to break the news to people but it's like uh wood type was just like the means of of advertising like they're just like the the tools of capitalism like they were just for ads for promoting things and like sure. community information like trying to get people to buy stuff um which like kind of a bummer maybe but like that's what media was and is and like this is what media was at the time and this is how information got around was just ink on paper that people would put up around town um or hand out um on the street and that's just how you learned about things well i think it's super interesting to think about like those sort of origin stories and then also sort of like what you know how media right the medium is a message and all that kind of business but the message is capitalism right um even today if we think about you know where we get most of our information whether it's social networks or whatever it's fueled by a kind of uh, bottom line if you will and advertising right mm -hmm. uh, because that's uh, the sort of the, the the dominant mode of exchange that um for better or for worse we are have been you know mired in if you will for for many years well, sure. but before we go down that sort of uh, <laughs> that that uh, wormhole, where where can we see some of these, you know, some specimens, some type specimens, some things that are made from the Rob Roy Cowley uh, collection? Uh, there's an upcoming opportunity. Uh, <laughs> we're having an exhibition at the end of this month, January, uh, at the Visual Arts Center, which is uh, on the UT campus in the art building. Um, we'll be having an opening reception on January 26th. Um, and this is going to be uh, an exhibition of, of some projects we've been doing over the past few years. Um, it's um, a lot of student work and kind of the the results of of some student programming that i've been facilitating for a few years um um essentially we're we're embarking on a project to reprint the entire collection so it will be to live as as a new document of this kind of like recontextualized robert kelly collection like what does this look like in 20 in the 2020s made by a new generation of of young designers um not by one middle-aged white dude like <laughs> what is like how do we rethink this um and so this is like a small snippet of this big endeavor which will be many years 
to come to complete it but we're kind of like it's a little checkpoint of like this is what we've been up to and uh this is what we're we're doing to keep the wood type dream alive nice and so and the visual arts center is just right across the street from the giant stadium and attached to mm-hmm. the the school of art there uh, at ut campus and the opening is free right free and open to the public yeah yeah come get a get a beer and uh talk about type do they serve alcohol at these things there is alcohol yes wow we, you know i i yeah, I teach at Texas State, and they won't. They will not do that. We are too uptight. I think you know, maybe you have better insurance at UT, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to see it. I, I think it's super exciting, and I love this ambitious project of like printing all this type. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've made some great posters and T-shirts for the Artist Run Club. Shout out to uh, Philip and the gang. Uh, we both uh, enjoy doing some running around town and looking at art um yeah. here in austin and you made two t-shirts uh commemorating uh anniversaries there and then also uh, this last time you did a poster um which was mm-hmm. really lovely which was featured in the last newsletter for those of you uh, keeping track so you could see that um if you look at the Substack, uh that's awesome well this has been super great um and uh super fun to talk about all this stuff and there's there's probably a lot more to talk about we'll have to have you back on and and see you know check in with your progress as you print all this type so is there anything else that you want to like mention or anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover hmm I don't think so. My whole life is leading up to this RRK show, and then it's downhill. <laughs> it's all good. That that thirty people um, that um, listen to this podcast, yeah. uh, and God bless you all um, <laughs> dearly. Um, they'll be on the edge of their seat waiting. And we can put it. You know, we can put it in the show notes if you if you do come up with something um, that, that you want to uh, add. But um, I should add that we are are making going to make a poster together speaking of full circle moments mm-hmm. um that um mountains and stars is a sort of uh country band project that's long in the making and we got a little grant to put out a record and henry has agreed to making a, a silkscreen poster which hopefully will feature some of this this type um and then maybe integrate uh Part of the visuals is my great grandfather's photographs from around 1920 in Montana, and they're just like there's these insane photographs, which you can see at Mountains and Stars on Instagram um, if you want to follow along. Um, the pictures are insanely good, so I'm super excited uh, to to work on this poster because it. I, I love these posters too, and I just think, man, it's just like a perfect thing is to to have. Um, your brain working on it i'm just i'm just thrilled oh thanks yeah um i think it'll be a really perfect pairing um, yeah i hope so yeah no it definitely will be uh, yeah. cool cool well thank you so much henry and um we'll talk again soon sounds good thanks a lot barry yeah sure
Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to head to collabprojects.org for tickets to Vast as the Sea, the PSO uh, curated series of events at Collab Projects here in Austin, Texas. It's supposed to be chilly, so bring a blanket to sit upon the blankets already laid upon the floor. Um, I hear there may even be a reprise of hot chocolate that was served to rave reviews at the ICOSA listening event of second season the other day. Um, uh, shout out to ICOSA. So, and PSO will provide love and all the coziness. You just bring your ears and good vibes. Until then, take care.